So I'm going to do a little bit of a traditional introduction and a little bit of a quiz. Okay. First of all, Clive Lawton uh, had nothing to do with the South Carolina primary yesterday. Okay. But going a little farther east, we are going to be hearing tonight about the truth about Europe and whether it's getting worse for the Jews. Uh, very serious, very serious topic. Mr. Lawton is a senior consultant to Lemud. So what is Lemud? Anybody know? Uh, well, I'm going to tell you a little more. Because I went to their website, and I found out that they say that wherever you find yourself, Lemud will take you one step further along your Jewish journey. Okay? Dedicated to Jewish learning in all its variety, an ambitious and passionate organization that's with an S, organization, with a global reputation for creating events with a lively approach to Jewish learning. They're inspired, led, and run by volunteers, committed to harnessing the energy of people from right across the Jewish community, all ages, all religious affiliations, and none, and from across the world. Mr. Lawton was number 18 not a coincidence. There are no coincidences, right? Number 18 in the UK's Power 100 list. That's not the Power 100 Jewish list. That's Power 100 of all the UK. On the faculty of the European Center for Leadership Training and the London School of Jewish Studies, a member of the Metro Metropolitan Police Authority and chair of the Citizens Focus Subcommittee, he grew up in Ealing. Right, those things that come off a of bio, right? A CV. Does anybody know where Ealing is? That's right, see? I do. It's a suburban area. I told you we'd have a quiz. A suburban area of West London. He has a BA in English and postgraduate certificate of education from York. Where's York? 204 miles north of London. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, a city that was founded by the Romans in 71 AD under the name of Iboracum. I knew you knew that. You wanted to know that before you left. Okay. Mr. Lawton is uh, an uh, associate of the Drama Board in Education, MA in Theater and Film Studies, an MED in Religious Studies, and MSc in Educational Management. He broadcasts and writes widely in fields of religion, moral education, and religious education. Uh, and for a little bit of the levity in the introduction, I know we do have a very serious topic. So please join me as we welcome Mr. Clive Lawton, who will speak to us about the truth about Europe getting worse for the Jews. Thank you. Well, uh, good evening, everybody. Um, just uh, since you heard about Ibarakum and York being founded by the Romans, I should tell you that that's not all there is to say about York, uh, because it was not long after taken over by the Vikings. Uh, you may not know the Vikings were very active in England. They didn't just maraud and leave. Uh, they were there for quite a long time and established themselves in York. And then, anyway, lovely place. Visit. Don't just think New York is the only York worth seeing. Um, so is um, the truth about Europe? There, there isn't a truth about Europe. So that's the end of that lecture. 
Okay, because of course it's it's absurd to suggest that there's a, a single view that will tell you all you need to know. I can only tell you my view, and I've given this lecture in one other place so far here in Orange County. I'm down to give it a couple more times in the next week. Um, but I've given it in one other place, and um, I think several of the people there thought I was just wrong. And they knew I was wrong, because they'd read about Europe. And what do I know? Right? I mean, after all, what do I know? So let me give you my credentials first, and then you can decide whether what I have to say is worth listening to about Europe. First of all, I have for the last 15 years been on the faculty of something called the European Centre for Leadership Training. Uh, and this is an organisation based in Paris, but works all over Europe, developing leadership in various different ways. Um, uh, I suppose one would say a semi-academic professional body, um, and various different groups and organisations buy in our time to train their leaders. All kinds, um, commercial, communal, so on and so forth. So that's resulted in me working all around Europe, and I've worked in every country in the European Union and one or two countries not in the European Union, um, with the exception of Portugal. I've never worked in Portugal. Um, and then I'm an advisor to the European Union on integration matters, uh, diversity, community integration. And the European Union, from time to time, probably once every couple of months or so, uh, leases me a contract to go to this or that municipality, towns around Europe, to work usually with municipal leaders on the integration or the difficulties they're facing with integration of new arrivals. Uh, and in that context, over the course of the last four or five years, I suppose I've worked in about uh, a dozen cities in uh, seven or eight countries. As you heard, I'm senior consultant to Limud, um, and that involves me going to work with the teams setting up Limuds around the world. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was in Baltimore. Uh, more recently than that, I was in Jerusalem. Uh, when I get back from England, uh, from California, where am I? When I get back from California, uh, the following weekend, I'll be in Sweden. Uh, working with Limud teams. And during the course of the last uh, four or five years, I've worked with Limud teams in Sweden, Holland, France, Germany, Lithuania, Russia, Ukraine, Moldova, Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, the former Yugoslavia, both in Serbia and in Bosnia, that might be it. I also do my own freelance work around Europe, uh, community development stuff and educational development stuff. And I've worked with the Italian government on the development of its uh, educational curricula in secondary schools, high schools, um, just this last year. Uh, and so I hope you will accept my claim that I know a little bit about Europe, both in terms of the Jewish communities and the general scene. And of course, I live in Britain, which, although many Britain, British people would like to deny it, is in Europe. Um, 
Now, the British are somewhat ambivalent about Europe. They're not quite sure whether they're in it or out of it. And most British people, as you may know, uh, will say, I'm going to Europe, right? By which they mean, I'm going across onto what is more properly called the continent. And there's a famous headline in the Times of London in the 1920s. Um, we're divided from France by what's called the English Channel. Um, and uh, a famous headline in, in this uh, newspaper in the 1920s, which said, Fog in the Channel, Continent Isolated. <laughs> right? Which tells you, tells you something about the British frame of mind, you know. It's they who are cut off. We're obviously the centre of the world, right? Um, of course, you being Americans have no idea of that sort of self-centred approach to the world. Um, you wouldn't understand that at all. Um, so, uh, so I have some uh, experience of working in and around Europe and working in and around Europeans. Um, and I have also sometimes even been called upon to commentate on the European scene um, in different contexts. So I broadcast on the BBC from time to time uh, and have reason to talk about European things that I've experienced. Um, and I've written fairly widely about it, not least a chapter in a book called Turning the Kaleidoscope, which is a study of modern Jewish communities in Europe. All right. Um, so it's all of that background. And I feel I should say that. I, wouldn't, I didn't say that the first time I gave this lecture, because I thought it would sort of be obvious that I might know something about Europe. But it was perfectly clear by the end that there were some people who were just doing that. What does he know? I know because I've read USA Today, um, in which it's almost impossible to find any piece of news about anywhere other than America. And then I read it a bit more closely and I found you couldn't find any news about America either. <laughs> Strange. Um, but anyway, so, uh, so the truth about Europe. So there are some truths which are not very helpful, right? But I'll share them with you now. Gosh, I'm standing like, sounding like a Californian, aren't I? I'm not going to share them with you. I'm going to tell you, right? I'm going to tell you them now. Um, one of the truths about Europe is you cannot generalize. It's right? so really important to remember that. You may want to be subtle about the United States. That is, if I said, well, I've been in California, so I know about America. Right? You'd be quite justified in saying, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. California doesn't tell you anything about Arizona or Arkansas or Kansas or whatever. And you'd be quite right. It tells you, maybe it tells me something, but it doesn't tell me everything. And I've been here um, during the, the primaries and the caucuses in Iowa and wherever that other one was, and South Carolina. Where was the middle one? New Hampshire. New Hampshire. New Hampshire. I've been to Old Hampshire, right? Um, New Hampshire and South Carolina, right? And, and it's perfectly obvious, you all know, don't you, that each one is, is dramatically different one from the other, and the nature of the, the population, the, their expectations, their understandings of the world, their, the way they see and look at what's important is radically different. If that's true about the United States, which have been the United States since, the seven, since 1776, how much more is it likely to be true in Europe which is still only experimenting with the business of some sense of, of commonality. Right. Compound that by the fact that we all speak different languages. Proceedings at the European Union are translated into 25 different languages. Right. 
That's unimaginable, isn't it? In the United States terms, you're already getting a bit jumpy about Spanish. <laughs> right? And yet at the European Union, 25 different languages in order to create some sense of common understanding. And a complete refusal on the part of most people to accept that some languages are more dominant than others. The fact that nobody speaks Hungarian except Hungarians, right, it's of no consequence. The Hungarians are going to have to have everything translated into Hungarian, thank you very much. Right? And, and, you know, the Brits can go around all they like going, well, surely everybody speaks English, who matters? Right? It doesn't help. All the languages have to be that. You will have read in the press, uh, no doubt, all the shenanigans going on now. Do you have shenanigans here as well? Yes, you do. Okay, all the shenanigans going on now around the euro, the, the common currency of 17 of those 27 countries. Right? Folks, however difficult it gets and however silly it looks and however wrong it goes, do not underestimate the astonishing ambition of this plan to have a common currency. These countries which are seeking to somehow manage their economies commonly were killing each other a few decades ago. Right? I mean, don't underestimate this. It was clear, it was obvious a few decades ago, in, in some of our lifetimes and certainly in the lifetimes of all of our parents, a few decades ago, it was obvious that Europe was the place where people beat hell out of each other. Where millions died in wars. Two great world wars, not least. But besides those, lots of other little ones. And indeed, it's not over. You all must have seen the Balkan Wars that happened, the explosion that broke out in the former Yugoslavia as Yugoslavia broke down. And the battles between the Serbs and the Croats and the Croats and the Serbs and the, and the Serbs and the Bosnians and the Kosovans and the Serbs and, and, and all that stuff. Still bubbling and crumbling. So the very idea to try and create a parliament in which nobody speaks the same language and to try and create a common economic base somehow in which every place is utterly different is totally astonishing. And you may feel it stupid. You may feel it stupid. And you may be justified. But you really ought to spare a moment to think that it's also admirable. As a dream, as an idea, however stupid it is. Don't just look at the European Union and think, stupid, I don't know what they're about. Recognize that it's a remarkable ambition, at least. And if it doesn't work, or if parts of it don't work, and the euro's now looking a bit wobbly. But if parts of it don't work, really that's hardly surprising. What's truly surprising is that lots of it does. I'm going to take a very simple example. I come here and drive here, and all of your road signs are nothing like anything I've ever seen before. Right? I have to read about four pages of sign before I can find out what the speed limit is. I can't just tell me a number, damn it, so I can see what the speed limit is. I've got to read it. What happens to people who can't read it? There are all sorts of signs you've got which require people to read English. What about people who don't read English? Right? But they're, they're written signs with words on them. As I understand it, some of your schools produce people who can't read. <laughs> right? What happens to them? 
Is America accommodating that? In every single country in Europe, every single country in Europe, we have the same road signs. We all can immediately, wherever you go, we can all immediately recognize whether men are at work or whether it's a one-way road or whether it's a no-entry thing or what the speed limit is or whatever. That's astonishing. It wasn't true in my childhood. It's true now. Right? There are parts of Europe, not all of it by any means yet, but there are parts of Europe where people can walk in from one country into the other in the same way as you cross states. Amazing. Amazing to see people come uh, from Italy into France, from France into Germany, from Germany into Poland. There were wars to do that before. People just walking through without showing their passports because they're all part of the European Union. Uh, Britain's not doing that, thank you very much. We're an island race and we're not letting anybody in until we've checked them. Not as vigorously and paranoidly as you do, but nevertheless, we want to check them. I don't know if you can imagine trying to bring together smoothly all the countries of Latin America and the United States into some kind of single, legal, financial, political collaboration. That's what the European Union is seeking to do. So not surprisingly, of course, a place like Greece, which is predominantly rural, has a very particular culture. Oh, did I say 27 languages? I should have mentioned three different scripts. All right, you write Greek in letters that nobody in Britain can read. All right, and, and then there are the Cyrillic characters of the Russian languages. So we're trying to standardize all of this. The European Union is an astonishing, astonishing dream in the process of being tested to see if it can become reality. End of advertisement for that. Now, what about the Jews? They're everywhere. The Jews are to be found, the Jewish community is to be found in pretty well every European country. Stronger and weaker, bigger and smaller, Anybody want to, anybody know which is the largest national Jewish community in Europe? France. France, absolutely. France is um, about, uh, sorry, France, um, is about uh, 600,000 Jews, something like that. 600,000 Jews. Which, of course, is dwarfed by some of the metropolitan Jewish communities of the United States. I mean, that's was it roughly the number of Jews in Los Angeles, or creation Los Angeles, or something like that. 600,000 Jews in France. Um, next largest Jewish community in Europe? Who? The UK, yes. Difficult, isn't it? Is it England? Is it the UK? Is it Britain? Uh, we don't know either. But since Scotland's in the process of breaking off, it'll probably be England before very long. Um, but right now it's the UK. It'll probably remain the UK until the Queen has her 60th anniversary, and then I think the Scots will get going seriously about breaking off. Um, uh, and so the UK, yes, the UK's probably got around 280,000 Jews, about 280,000 Jews, so it's a significant fall away from French Jewry. We're not too sure of the numbers of Jews in the Ukraine and in Russia, right? Um, but probably something like 200,000-ish in each place, possibly more, right? Um, 
Next, next largest Jewish community in, in Europe is Germany. About 120,000 Jews in Germany and growing all the time. Germany has one of the most um, uh, pleasant and sympathetic environments for Jews, uh, both uh, legally, financially, um, uh, ability to move around, uh, accommodation, um, respect for and um, uh, liberal approaches to refugees and uh, migrants uh, has made Germany tremendously popular for a significant number of Jews, especially those coming from the former Soviet Union. Uh, German Jewry now, as I say, is about 120,000 and rising, um, and probably about four-fifths of German Jewry uh, was 30 years ago not living in Germany. So just imagine what that's like. Imagine, for example, if you're members of this community here in Batyam, imagine that we immediately brought into this room, let's say, what are there, 60 people here, 60, 70 people, okay? We immediately brought into this room another 300 people who were not even speaking your language. And you have to make them fit in help them, accommodate them, make them feel at home, enable them to integrate. How does that work? Four to one, five to one. Huge challenge. German jury is doing it very well. But of course, there are bumpy aspects of it. Right? Um, the next largest Jewish community after Germany, 120,000. Anybody any idea what's the next largest? Hmm? I can't hear whether somebody... Give me a, yes. Poland. Poland. No. Italy. Hungary. Hungary. Hungary's next. Hungary's got about 80,000 Jews. Hungary is the only country behind the Iron Curtain that continued to train rabbis uh, during communist years. It had a yeshiva in Budapest, um, and, and that yeshiva produced rabbis for several of the Iron Curtain countries uh, during those uh, 70, 80 years of frozen wastes. Um, the Hungarian Jewish community is almost all centered in Budapest, not completely, but almost all centered in Budapest. It's um, very argumentative and uh, um, challenging, um, but also very, very visible. Uh, one of the major events in the Hungarian, in the Budapest cultural calendar is the annual festival of Jewish culture, which is publicly marketed, you know, big posters all over the place and uh, so on and so forth, festival of Jewish culture, big deal in the cultural calendar of Budapest. Um, and then after that 80,000 or so, uh, numbers start to slide. So in, in Italy, there's about uh, 35,000 Jews. Um, in the Scandinavian countries, um, a few thousand in Sweden, perhaps, uh, uh, eight to ten thousand. Norway's got uh, two or three thousand. Finland about a thousand. Um, Holland has about thirty-five thousand. Belgium has about twenty thousand. Um, Poland. Somebody mentioned Poland. Now Poland is very interesting because I know you want me to get to the trouble. I'm just giving you the information, but you want to hear about how grim it all is. So let's just come to Poland. Um, many of you here, some of you here, I'm sure, have Polish antecedents. Um, and you will have been brought up with your stories about Poland. I mean, you, you, your family's told you what it was like. 
Um, uh, some of you here may indeed have been born and, and lived your childhoods in, uh, in, in Poland, I don't know. Um, so you'll know what your experience is. So I can't tell you anything about your experience. You know your experience. I can only tell you what's happening now. Right. The story in Poland is that Poland has been through, first of all, the Nazi invasion um, that resulted eventually in the Shoah and the killing of three million of the three and a half million Jews of Poland. Right. And then almost immediately was swallowed up by communism uh, under the control of Stalin, I mean, not direct control of Stalin, but Stalin and his allies. Uh, and communism made it equally unpleasant and difficult to be an identifying Jew. Um, so for, I think we can say more or less, since 1939, through to about 10 years ago, or 15 years ago or so, um, being a Jew was something probably best not mentioned. Right? Now, that wasn't always possible to not mention it because there were systems in the, um, in the Soviet arena of power whereby people's passports were stamped as Jew. Uh, simply because, and we don't have to read this particularly negatively, because many of those countries of Eastern Europe wanted to retain the ethnicity of the individual. Now, this is a really difficult thing, I think, for Americans to understand. Europeans are really puzzled by the idea that anybody has a nationality which is different to their ethnicity. Right? If you're a German, culturally, then you're a German, surely. And if you're a German, then surely you're culturally a German. And the two things go together. You here in America, in a sense, you're ready to admit there's no such thing as an American. Just that. I need to know a bit more. What, what kind of American? There's a Jewish American, Irish American, Italian American. You know, I need to know a little bit about that in order to understand what particular sort of American you're talking about. But that's not true in Europe. A Spaniard is a Spaniard. Everybody knows what a Spaniard is. Somebody who lives and grows up in Spain and speaks Spanish and is Spanish. Right? And a Portuguese is not Spanish, obviously. And if a Portuguese happens to live in Spain, then he's a Portuguese who's living in Spain. Don't confuse me, please. He's Portuguese, obviously he is. The Jews have always been anomalous in this. Because the Jews have lived in Greece or Spain or Germany or wherever. And they go, yeah, I am German, but also Jewish. And Europeans from pretty well everywhere go, I, I, so what do you mean? So are you German or are you Jewish? Which, which is it? That's not the kind of question that people are confronted with in America. But it's an obvious question in Europe. And, and an obvious question for anybody who wanted to make that kind of claim. All right, so as many of you will know, um, the uh, Germans living in Czechoslovakia before the beginning of the Second World War were the cause of Germany's invasion of Czechoslovakia because the Germans belonged to Germany. Right? So obviously the bit where Germans were living was obviously part of Germany, must be. Otherwise, what are they doing living there? Right? And that's why all these wars were fought. Because we've got, got some of our people over there, so that must be our piece of land. Really, really an obvious piece of European thinking. And the Jews, of course, never, ever properly fitted into this. Now, in Eastern Europe, before the arrival of communism, well, okay, around the time of the arrival of communism, 
Everybody became very interested in different ethnicities. Everybody wanted their own country. Right? This is the rise of nationalism in the 19th century. The Jews also wanted their own country. They too, in Europe, said, it's true, actually, you can't really get be Jewish and German, you can't be Jewish and French, it doesn't make any sense. We've got to have a Jewish country, and then you can be Jewish and Jewish. There's no problem with that. Right? That was their solution to that problem. But in every other place where there was a mixture of people, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire was an obvious example, ethnicities needed to be represented. So in the various parliaments before the First World War, there were Jewish members of parliament representing the Jews. Right? And that continued after the First World War in the newly created Poland. In the Polish government, there were Jewish rep members of parliament representing the Jews, that the Jews elected, and they were in parliament right? before the Second World War. Right? However, after the Second World War, this uh, was not a popular idea amongst the Soviets, who wanted to argue that all these nationalisms were a plot by capitalists to separate working men one from another. This is the international. So what they wanted was they wanted everybody internationally to be part of the USSR. But they couldn't ignore the fact that Georgians were Georgians, Ukrainians were Ukrainians, Moldovans were Moldovans, and so on. So on their USSR passport, they had a stamp which said Moldovan, Ukrainian, Georgian, Belarusian, Siberian, Jewish. Right? Everybody had a stamp. Everybody had an ethnic stamp. And Jewish didn't necessarily mean anything better or worse at the beginning of the USSR. Under Lenin, fine, no problem. Under Stalin, it got worse. And yet people carried this stamp. What's truly remarkable is how many Jews in the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries continued to find their way to the top even though they had these stamps in their passports. You, probably many of you, will remember that whole Refusenik movement, people trying to get out of, out of the USSR, right, and refused exit visas. And so many of them, weren't they, were senior scientists and, uh, and artists and so on and so forth. How did they find their way up through the education system when they had on their passport Jew? You have to nuance your belief that having Jew on your passport would immediately disadvantage you. Now, I'm interested by the fact that when I come to America, I hear repeatedly stories of people saying, well, of course, in those days, you couldn't do this or that or the other because th there was a Jewish quota or they wouldn't let the Jews in or the Jews wouldn't do this. And they, they, the country clubs, of course, we built our own jay because nobody could join the country club and, and, and the people couldn't get into Yale and, you know, all that stuff. I hear that all the time in America. And yet somehow or other, Americans kind of smooth it over as, yeah, 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 well, it was then. Of course, this is the land of the free. But the minute you hear a slight rumour of such a thing in Europe, it's immediate proof that the place has gone to hell in a handcart. And yet we have so much evidence of Jews rising to the top in just about every European country. Some of you will have... So, back to Poland. You all know, don't you, that Poland is the most anti-Semitic place in the world. Right? People soak up 
what was it that Shamir said? The Poles absorb anti-Semitism with their mother's milk. Right? Well, Shamir had cause to say that. He grew up in Poland in the interwar years, and uh, he had a very grim experience of it. Is it still true about Poles? Is it still true about Poles? Well, uh, guys, I have met Polish anti-Semites. I gather there's the Ku Klux Klan here, right? That doesn't necessarily make a generalization about America and doesn't necessarily make a generalization around Poland. But here's an interesting little phenomenon that somehow or other you have to fit in your picture of what's going on in Europe. Today, possibly yesterday, maybe tomorrow, but definitely either yesterday, today or tomorrow, some young Polish adult brought up as a kind of hybrid Catholic communist, will talk to their grandparent, most probably, and their grandparent will tell them, maybe on their deathbed, maybe just because they think it's important and their grandchild has got to 18 or whatever it might be, their grandparent will say to them, I never told you this before, but actually, you're a Jew. I know it's going to happen yesterday, today, or tomorrow, because it happens at least a couple of times a week, every week, and has been happening that way every week since the communist regime fell in Poland. Hundreds a year, well over a thousand since that started, have been being told by their grandparents, sometimes their parents, you're really Jewish. Imagine this. Let us assume for a moment the uh, favorite Jewish story that Poland is very anti-Semitic and that Poles are very anti-Semitic. So here is this 18-year-old who's a Pole. We would normally expect, therefore, in the average way of things, that they're anti-Semitic. Isn't that what Poles are? And then when they're 18, their grandmother says, you're actually a Jew. Now, if you were this Polish youngster, riddled with anti-Semitism that we're assuming, what would you do with that information? I know what I'd do. I'd back away quietly. And I'd say to my grandmother, don't mention that to anybody else. I don't think that's the sort of thing I want known about me. Because whatever you may think it means, I'm not interested, thank you. I'm not a Jew, I'm a Pole. Right? Wouldn't that be, they're all anti-Semites, that's a natural thing to happen. It's not what they do. The minute their grandmothers or their grandfathers or whoever it is tells them this, they run out into the street going, oh, look, I'm a Jew, what shall I do about it? They tell everybody. They run about trying to find out, what does this mean, what shall I do, right? It's the most remarkable phenomenon. Now, that doesn't mean to say they're all going to become religious or join a shul or do whatever. But my goodness, it seems to be a feather in their cap. Hundreds of Poles every year coming forward, claiming some sort of Jewish ancestry, 
And, and I'm just talking about the ones with the grandparents. Then there are others digging and digging and digging to find some connection between themselves and the Jews. And there are the, then there are the unashamedly non-Jewish Poles who are doing everything they can to identify the Jewish history of the place in which they live. All around Poland. All around Poland. There are huge numbers of Jewish cemeteries. Now, before you smile ruefully at that, a Jewish cemetery, of course, is evidence of a well-established, peaceful community. You don't have a cemetery for a place that's been massacred. You have a cemetery for a place where the living were able to bury the dead in a decent way. Cemeteries are evidence of long-standing, well-established Jewish communities. Right? And all around Poland, there are Jewish cemeteries. Because as we said, there were millions of Jews in Poland. Right? And many of these cemeteries have been badly, were badly damaged, not least by the Nazis. Smashed up or, or simply overrun or left to um, be overrun because there was nobody there to care for them. Nobody came forward to look after them. It's almost a national pastime is reconstructing Jewish cemeteries in Poland. And it's not done by Jews. Now, I don't know what you make of that. I don't know if you say, well, you know, dare I say there may be prejudice against Poles amongst Jews, which means to say that whenever I give a piece of positive information, you're going to go, yeah, yeah, of course. Because you don't want to hear anything positive. Because you know what you think already. Because, you see, the definition of prejudice is prejudging something. That's what the word means. Making up your mind before you have evidence. Once you have evidence, you then have to decide. Do you change your mind because of the evidence? Or do you ignore the evidence because you already made up your mind? That's the definition of prejudice. Some of you may have heard that life in France for Jews is getting hard. Chap said to me the other day, and I have to say I laughed because I thought he couldn't be serious, but he was. So then I tried to put on a straight face. Chap said to me the other day that he thought it would just be a matter of years before Notre Dame, the great cathedral in Paris, became a mosque. My response was, <laughs> and he carried on looking at me like, mm. he knows because he's visited Paris. Right? I think I'm in Paris five or six times a year. So I'm pretty sure I've visited more often than he has. But I'm not going to try and base my assumptions about Notre Dame and its mosque capacities on my six visits to Paris a year. I'm going to base it on the fact that when the Jews first were allowed back into Britain in 1656, one of the conditions of their readmission was that they should not purchase St. Paul's Cathedral and change it into a synagogue. The reason I mention that is because it seems to me that this is a common lie told about arriving people when you think they're going to threaten you. They're going to take over our center of worship and they're going to steal it for themselves. And the Notre Dame story sounds to me exactly like that 17th century nonsense leveled against the Jews when they came into Britain. There is no way, no way on this planet, and you can come back and tell me if I'm wrong in 10 years' time, no way on this planet that the Muslims would take over Notre Dame 
It's too drafty. It doesn't serve Muslim purposes. It doesn't point towards Mecca. It points towards Jerusalem. It's just not, it's just, it's just a stupid, stupid idea which gets propagated and people pick it up because it resonates with this bizarre fear that the Muslims are going to take over Europe. So any foundation for this story? Any foundation for this story whatsoever? I see people nodding. There is apparently. Muslims are going to take over Europe. They haven't yet, of course. Not in any single place. Not in any, any place. Not in any town, not in any village, not in any country. They haven't. But they will soon. Why? Because there's several million of them. Several million. Out of the European population of 350 million. So takeover is just around the corner. Because you have to understand this. Muslims are the best organized people on the planet. And they never argue with each other. Muslims are a single-minded, determined, international conspiracy. There's a book called The Protocols of the Elders of Mecca. Not. Guys, what is so interesting to me is that we seem to be prepared to accept stories about Muslims which are almost identical to the stories that have been told about Jews with the same amount of justification and evidence. Now, let's get back to France. In France, there is a very, very large Muslim population. Um, there is, of course, as I said before, quite a large Jewish population, but not in the same league and scale at all as the Muslim population. But then come to that. There's a billion Muslims in the world, and there's only 14 million Jews in the world, so it's not going to be surprising that Muslims usually outnumber Jews in any given place. Right? Um, most of the Muslims, of course, and this is important to say in America especially, most of the Muslims, of course, are not Arab. Right? I know in America it seems to be quite often that Muslim is almost used as a synonym for Arab. Right? But by far the majority of Muslims in the world are not Arab. There are more Muslims in Indonesia than there are in the, all of the Middle East put together. The three most significant nations in the Middle East are not Arab. Egypt, Turkey and Iran. And are pretty appalled if you call them Arab. They're very proud of their ancient, ancient cultures. And they see the Arabs as country hicks out of the desert. But nevertheless, let's just take it for the moment that there are millions of Arabs, uh, Muslims in, 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 in France. Where do they come from? Well, they come, of course, from North Africa, in pretty well, totally. They come from Algeria and they come from Morocco. Right? And that, of course, is where most of the Jews come from, too. France has a long-standing Jewish community, um, but a comparatively small and quite heavily assimilated Jewish community, um, which was rejuvenated and challenged and um, bolstered in numbers hugely in the 1960s when large numbers of Jews came from Morocco and Algeria, um, moving out as the French moved out of those places too. Why did they come to France? Because they didn't want to be run by the Muslims. 
right? Why not? In the 1960s, of course, things had already gone pretty poorly uh, for Jews in Muslim lands following the establishment of the State of Israel. Prior to that, Jews in Morocco, Jews in Algeria had lived pretty comfortably, but once the State of Israel and the Middle East conflict played its part, it made life much more difficult. And when it became clear that the French were no longer going to be running Morocco and no longer going to be running Algeria, the Jews moved out and they went to France. Why did they go to France? Because they all spoke French. They didn't speak Arabic, they spoke French. They identified with the colonial masters. Jews have often done that. And when they arrived in France, they established themselves only to discover that they were followed by a whole bunch of other folk that they thought they'd escaped, turning up in France too. So it is true that there is a fair number of French people leaving France now, not least to go on Aliyah. When I say a fair number, let's get this into some kind of proportion. I said there's about 600,000 Jews, right? And there's perhaps a thousand going each year on Aliyah. Now, how many were going on Aliyah before anybody got in uh, a state about this? Uh, the previous numbers were about 800 a year going on Aliyah. So what you've got is an increase of about 200. There's a 25% increase. That's quite significant, right? Going on Aliyah now from France. These are not the long-established French families of France, the Jewish families of France. These are folk who were never really established in France anyway, leaving to go to Israel. So in order to understand what's going on for these folk, what they did was they moved to France in order to escape Algeria, say, only to discover that they thought Algeria now was following them, so they move again. Right? Are they right or are they wrong? It's quite tricky to say, but I'll tell you this. If you go to France nowadays, go to Paris, for example, where the largest number of Jews is. Up in Paris, on all sorts of streets, there are big... Um, street maps, so you can find your way around. On these street maps, they mark the metro stations and the theatres and so on and so forth, and they mark the churches and they mark the synagogues. Interestingly enough, they don't mark the mosques. Right? They mark the churches and they mark the synagogues. There are Magene, David, all over the maps because that's where the synagogues are. Everybody can find a synagogue in Paris because it's there on a street map, publicly. Does this sound like a community that's a bit afraid? It's very odd. Many French people will tell you, oh, it's not good. You say, so then how does this change your behavior? What have you done differently? What's made a difference? Well, nothing really, but it's not good. It's very difficult to know what's happening, whether people keep telling themselves that it's bad so they start believing that it's bad, or that it is bad. I, look, I walk around Europe with my kippah on. Uh, it's never caused me any trouble. But sooner or later, one day or another, somewhere or other, it's perfectly possible that I will meet that nutter with a knife. Perfectly possible. And if that nutter with a knife is in Istanbul, or in Paris, or in London, or indeed in Irvine, it doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the place where the nutter with a knife is. But of course, if it happens in Irvine, you'd say how terrible that ghastly, horrible man doing that. But if it happens in Paris, you go, I always thought there was trouble there. 
All around Europe, you have increasingly thriving Jewish communities. Jewish communities are becoming more strident, more assertive, more visible, more confident, and of course are heavily, heavily well integrated into European society. Oh, you, uh, let's come back to France and its uh, put in, reputed anti-Semitism. You'll know that Dominic Strauss-Kahn, you may have heard of him, right? Dominic Strauss-Kahn um, had his presidential ambitions dashed by some New York enthusiasm. All right. Dominic Strauss-Kahn, no secret whatsoever from beginning to end, is a Jew. I don't know who mentioned he was a Jew in this whole trouble, but it wasn't mentioned in France. And anyway, he was a presidential candidate, for goodness sake. France has had Jewish presidents. It's had Jewish prime ministers. I remember how excited everybody got in America when there was a possibility that Joe Lieberman might be vice president. Let's just figure out which places are more ready to accommodate Jews and not. Yesterday evening, I went to see this film, The Iron Lady, about that horrible woman. And <laughs> I don't want to give you any of my personal opinions. Um, uh, and it, it didn't mention it in the film, but it's just worth mentioning that uh, in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet of uh, 18 men, six were Jews. I don't know if it's worth mentioning that Margaret Thatcher said that the then chief rabbi, Emmanuel Jacobowitz, was the only religious leader in Britain who gave a religious lead. This is a country with an established church. And if that's what Margaret Thatcher said about that chief rabbi, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown said about the current chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, that there is no moral philosopher in the world to touch them, to touch him. This is the chief rabbi they're talking about, both of whom, by the way, were ennobled and went into the House of Lords. Well, you may say, well, that's just Britain. So what about the Italian minister that I met the other day? I don't mean religious minister, I mean government minister. Look, being a government minister in Italy is not necessarily proof of anything very important, right? <laughs> In fact, it might even be a badge of shame, I don't know. But anyway, this particular government minister is the Minister of Housing, right? uh, and she lives half her life in Israel. In Israel. She's stridently, self-evidently, incontrovertibly Jewish. And there she is, government minister in the Italian government. Then again, you've got Michael Melchior, who's the chief rabbi in Oslo. Well, he, of course, was a member of the Knesset and shuttled back and forth to Norway. Well, he was committed to Israel without doubt, but he was also the chief rabbi in Norway. But what you may not know is that there's a whole dynasty of Melchior's. Right? And at one time, chief rabbi of Sweden, chief rabbi of Norway, and chief rabbi of Denmark were all Melchior's. And the chief rabbi of Denmark, Melchior, was regularly consulted by the government on issues of educational and moral concern. She was chief rabbi. Now, I, I can give you any number of examples of this. I will tell you a couple of places that I'm really uneasy about Jewishly. 
Just so you don't think I'm just starry-eyed idiot. <laughs> Lithuania. Don't like that. Lithuania. There's a smallish community in Lithuania, probably about um, 8,000 Jews left in Lithuania. Um, somewhat caught in a, a real problem. All the Baltic Jews are caught in this problem, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, because these are countries very proud of their national identity. Um, and they were occupied by the Russians, and they were Russified by the Russians. That means, say, the Russians moved large numbers of Russians into the Baltic countries in order to make them more Russian, in order to tip the population balance. And a number of these people who went to those places were Jews. So the Jews are now caught in an interesting problem because Jews don't like nationalism, unless it's Zionism, of course. But generally speaking, nationalism is bad news in Europe because, as I said before, right, if people are going to get passionate about being German or Spanish or something, where does that leave the Jews who are not quite German and not quite Spanish? So Jews love cross-border stuff, Europe, the Baltic states, oddly, the USSR. Right? I mean, they didn't like Stalin, but the general idea of not having to be utterly committed to this or that national grouping is very attractive. I far prefer Britain to England, because I'm not sure that I'm English, but I know I'm British. Right? I don't know how that works in America. But it may be that, you know, you may feel American and Jewish, but, but perhaps you don't feel like a Kentuckian or whatever they call it. I don't know, right? Because maybe you don't completely gel with whatever that culture is in that particular state, in that particular place, right? But be that as it may, a lot of the Jews in Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia, but Lithuania in particular, um, are former Russians. Or Russians, ethnic Russians, whatever you call them. They're Jews and Russians, right? And Lithuanians and the Latvians and the Estonians don't like these Russians. They want to get them out. They're not trying to get them out because they're Jews. They're trying to get them out because they're Russians. Well, a lot of the Russians who were in Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia went back to Russia. Why would they not? But, of course, the Jews don't want to go back to Russia. There's nothing in Russia for them. So they'd rather stay in Lithuania or Latvia or Estonia. And so they remain being the only Russians there. So it's quite difficult for them. And most of them don't speak Lithuanian, Latvian, or Estonian, which, of course, is a badge of honor now for Lithuanians, Estonians, and Latvians. The last thing you want to do in those countries is speak Russian, because it's just proof of the fact that you belong to the old occupier. And the Jews all speak Russian. The result of this is that, for example, there is a Limud. You heard about Limud before. There is a Limud in the Baltics, based in Lithuania, gets together about 1,500 people every year, it's a huge event. Um, and, and they come from Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Um, and they can't speak each other's languages. Right? The Latvians can't speak Estonians. The Estonians can't speak Lithuanians. And, of course, quite a number of the Lithuanians can't speak Lithuanian either. They speak Russian. Russian is their lingua franca. They can all speak Russian to each other, but they don't want to. So they put up all their signs in English, which none of them can speak. <laughs> That's one of the traps. It's a problem. But Lithuanians have a long-standing old folkloristic tradition uh, which mocks 
the Jews on one particular occasion. You know how in Halloween uh, you, kids put on masks and run about the streets and you know, demand money with menaces from people, sweets or whatever it is they do. Um, uh, uh, Lithuania has a similar sort of folky event when kids put on, uh, I think there's six or eight different character masks and they run about the streets demanding money or whatever. Um, one of these character masks is the old hook-nosed Jew. Quite shocking. Quite shocking. But Lithuanians don't get it. I mean, ordinary, I don't mean Jewish ones. And in fact, Jewish ones are not too sure whether to be shocked or not. They go, well, it's tradition, you know, what can you do? This has always been like this, hundreds of years. Jews are a bit uneasy about challenging some ancient Lithuanian cultural practice because Lithuania is so excited about being able to re-express its ancient Lithuanian cultural practices. So who are the Jews to say, don't be as Lithuanian as you want to be? Because they're just enjoying becoming Lithuanian. So I'm not happy with Lithuania, and I'm uneasy about it. But let me just tell you this tale. The last time I was in Lithuania, I went to Vilnius, I arrived at the airport, and I was expecting to be met and taken from the airport to the hotel where I was staying. When I got there, there was nobody there. And I did not have a note of the hotel I was going to, nor did I have a note of the phone number of the people I was speaking because I was expecting somebody to be there to pick me up. And I don't have a mobile phone. I live my life without one. I was forced to have one here, but there you go. Um, so I was at the airport wondering what to do. You know, I don't know where to go. I don't know who to contact. I don't know what's going on. But I reckon if I don't turn up eventually, at the, I'm very relaxed about these things. If I don't turn up eventually at the hotel, somebody come looking for me. So I'll stay in the airport and eventually they'll know where I am. I, I, where else am I going to be? The airport. It can't be anywhere else, right? So I thought, fine. I'll, right. So I went over to the um, inquiry desk and said, you know, does that, do you have any idea? Have you got any information about this convention or where it's staying or something? She didn't know anything about it. There was another woman at the desk, um, not at the desk, sorry, another inquirer at the desk, who turned to me and said, what's the problem? And I said, well, I, I, I don't know where I'm staying, and I, I was expecting to be met. But Meanwhile, the woman at the desk said, oh, I think I know where this might be. So she phoned this hotel, got through to the hotel, and the hotel said, yes, this is where the convention is. So she said to me, right, you're going to such and such a hotel, wherever. The woman who was with me said, let me give you a lift. So I said, well, there's no need, it's okay. She said, no, 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 let me. So I said, be out of your way. She said, it's not a problem. It's not far out of my way anyway. I said, are you sure? Yes, absolutely, not a problem. So got in the car and off we went. Um, I don't know where she was heading to herself, but this was a 15-mile journey from the airport to my hotel. As we're arriving, she said, well, it's not far now. We're nearly there. As we're arriving, I said, this is so kind of you. Thank you so much. It really, you know, really good of you to put yourself out in this way. She said, look, I could see from your little hat that you're a Jew. The Jews have had horrible experiences in Lithuania. I wanted to be able to do something to put that right. What do you do with that? Did I meet the one decent Lithuanian? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to read it, but I have to tell it. That's the story. Right? At the same time, the Vilna synagogue a Vilnius synagogue, is the one synagogue that stayed open continuously in Lithuania throughout communist times. 
And although it uh, was shut during um, Nazi occupation, um, it wasn't damaged too severely, and it certainly wasn't destroyed, um, because I think it was too close up to other buildings that were valued, so they didn't want to do any damage to it. Uh, so straight after the Nazis were beaten, uh, the Jews got back in there and sort of tidied it up a bit and continued to use it. It's a rather um, dull, old stone building. It was cathedral-like, really. Maybe they stole it from the Christians and set up a synagogue there. Um, but uh, they, they've got this um, shul. Chabad has moved into Lithuania um, and has attempted to take over the synagogue. The local Jewish community doesn't want Chabad to take over the synagogue. And so there were fistfights in the synagogue on Shabbat morning over who could run the synagogue. So much so that the police were called. And the police closed the synagogue. And so the Jews had to pray in private houses until they finally got the house in order and sorted themselves out. Now, I saw a headline on this in the German Jewish newspaper. Lithuanian police close synagogue. That's wicked, isn't it? But it plays into our preferred story. The other place I'm not easy about, because I told you I'd tell you the two places, the other place I'm not easy about is Austria. I don't like that. Don't like Austria at all. Ah, there's a third one. Austria, very quickly. Austria's never faced up to its history. Doesn't want to admit what it, that it was an, uh, a partner, an enthusiastic partner with Nazi Germany, right? And it's never really squared up. It's never admitted. It's always claimed to be a victim of Nazism rather than a collaborator with Nazism. It's never really taken seriously the business of uh, compensation or redress or recognition. Right? And there have been a few, latterly, there have been a few mealy-mouthed comments uh, of recognition, but nothing much. I don't like Austria. I find Vienna a soulless place, and until it can look itself in the eye, and it can't at the moment, I'm not enthusiastic about going there, although I did some work there just recently. Right? So that's Austria. Don't really like it. The other place I feel very uncomfortable in, which has quite a sizable Jewish community, quite an active Jewish community. Austria's got about 10 or 15,000 Jews in it, mostly in Vienna. The other place I feel very uncomfortable with, and you may be surprised at, is Switzerland. Oh, I don't like Switzerland. What a smug, dull, stupid, wrong place it is. Sorry, any of you here Swiss? Oh, yes, well, there you go. Where, whereabouts? Where, which? Okay. <laughs> um, look, one of the things you. I'm going to try and be fair to the Swiss because uh, why not? Um, one of the things that's really, really hard, I think, for Americans to understand is the tremendous sense of vulnerability of every, of, of every European country, right? The fear. Of, of war and being overrun. The attempt somehow or other to stay out of it, just not get involved, if at all possible. Now, Switzerland's a tiny country encircled by everybody, right? And Switzerland has managed pretty well to keep its neutrality. And that's a very, very valuable thing to Switzerland, is what made it, of course, the headquarters of the Red Cross and the International Court and those kinds of things. Um, 
And so it's valued its neutrality hugely, and I fully understand that it's done so. And that actually, of course, neutrality doesn't come without a price. Neutrality often costs real moral cost. Because when, obviously, in something like the First World War, it's really quite difficult to know who was right and who was wrong. Right? Neutrality might be a fairly sensible position to take. But in something like the Second World War, where it's very clear that one side was definitely wicked, whatever you think about the other side, right? being neutral there is a real cost, an ethical, moral cost. Right? But I understand why you might want to be neutral if you fear being overrun by the wicked. Right? So, so it's tricky stuff. It really is tricky stuff. And I understand the Swiss difficulties. What they didn't need to do is they didn't need to make money out of it. Right? And that I find not forgivable. And the attempts to get Switzerland to repatriate monies, to compensate, to recognise, to admit, have been really hard wrung. Really wrung out of Swiss uh, governments. The other thing to say is that um, Switzerland, as it stands now, uh, is also very, very resistant to the flows of humanity which are happening around the world. And I feel very uncomfortable about a country like that, in the same way as I hope you all feel uncomfortable about Arizona. Right? You've got to recognise that humanity is on the move around this planet. And it's on the move not least because of the massive inequalities that exist. And the aspirations of people, like our grandparents, to get to some place more decent. Right? You've always got to decide when you want to pull up the ladder behind you. Uh, and that's a tricky judgment. But we like to tell ourselves, Jews like to tell ourselves, that our grandparents escaped persecution. And therefore they were refugees, and so what else could they do? But our grandparents didn't just escape persecution. They also chose to leave because they wanted a better life. They weren't all being persecuted. Yes, they were living a grim life, but everyone was living a grim life. They wanted a better life. Many of them are what we nowadays call economic migrants. They heard that life was better somewhere else. Get up and go. Good luck to them. Switzerland is one place, and, and especially, of course, it's not part of the European Union. It stayed out of that. And it's a bit fortress Switzerland. It's made laws now banning the building of mosques. That's appalling. Absolutely appalling. Why should people not be allowed to build their own religious centres? I mean, I'm not even talking about what went on in uh, Ground Zero and New York, about where you're going to place it. Just about having them. So I feel very uneasy and uncomfortable about Switzerland. Yes? Would you talk to us about the Ukraine? To? The Ukraine. The Ukraine, yes. Right. Well, the Ukraine is an incredibly impoverished place. It's really, really poor. And it's quite possibly the last place on the planet where there are Jews in deep economic difficulty. I mean, of course, in every community, you know, you have, I assume, you have poor Jews in Orange County. That's why you've got welfare work, right? Um, but taken overall, the Ukraine is really the last place where there are Jews living in the kinds of grim poverty that we can hardly imagine.
you know, with no running water, with no electricity to speak of in one room with six of them, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And, and that's because Ukraine is terribly poor, not because the Jews are particularly poorer than anybody else. In actual fact, of course, the Jews of the Ukraine are fortunate, as Jews have always been, because they've got allies outside. There's somebody delivering them welfare and support. There's somebody helping them out. There's the possibility, at least for young Ukrainian Jews, to go somewhere else. The people visiting, right? That's no hope. There's no such option for regular Ukrainian peasants. They're just facing a life of misery and grimness, and so are their children, unless they can find some way out of that. Is there anti-Semitism in the Ukraine? Um, not strikingly so, not uh, worthy of the name. Of course, one of the things that's famous about the Ukraine is this huge influx of folk who turn up to the tomb of uh, Nachman of Bretzlov, uh, one of the great Hasidic uh, rabbis um, in Oman. Um, they, they, the hundreds, well, thousands, tens of thousands of Hasidim pour in around Rosh Hashanah time uh, into this place. Um, and pretty well overrun it. Uh, what's quite interesting is that in, initially, they were completely indifferent to the local people, and um, the local people were obviously very pleased to have this influx of folk, but Hasidim largely weren't, weren't drinking coffee in the local coffee bars, right? <laughs> so they didn't make as much money as they'd hoped to make out of this vast tourist thing. And since then, there's been a greater move to try and invest a bit in the local economy. So, for example, all of these Hasidim turning up, as I say, tens of thousands of them turning up, uh, need medical facilities when they're there for the week. You know, they want doctors and first aid stations and so on. And now they've invested in some first aid stations for the town, not just for the week they come. And, and that's quite nice. Um, there's a certain amount of resentment of them because I think that they behave pretty clumsily. Uh, but taken overall, you know, that huge influx of Jews doesn't lead to a great uprising of anti-Semitism. Um, and of course, there are some hugely wealthy Ukrainian Jews, the billionaire oligarchs in the Ukraine as much as in Russia and in other places. Um, and some of those are doing good for other Ukrainian Jews, and some of them are not. Um, uh, and releasing oligarchic billions is the next great challenge for the global Jewish people. Um, because mostly they're not distributing it enthusiastically. But it'll come. But I don't think Ukraine is particularly... I mean, Ukraine is a grim place. I warmly recommend to you that you don't plan your retirement there. Right? <laughs> Although, actually, you'd probably be very, very rich if you did. Um, but it's a grim place. Uh, but, I, but I don't think that's particularly special for the Jews. Yes? Oh, sorry, Romania. Well, Romania has an interesting history because Romania, even during the communist times, retained a relationship with Israel, which was really quite, um, quite dynamic. Um, this was not least a decision on the part of the uh, then chief rabbi of Romania, who, uh, so after the war, um, who decided that what Romanian jury would do would be to seek to send its children to Israel. Now, Romania actually had an interesting relationship. The government of Romania had an interesting relationship with Israel anyway. Um, and the early state of Israel was to some degree armed by Romania. Not only Romania, but to some degree armed by Romania. Um, and so there's some kind of relationship there anyway. Um, and they pretty well allowed the Jews to send their children out. 
And the Jews were left fairly well to themselves in Romania through communist times. But this strategy, of course, has severely knocked the uh, demographic nature of the, of the community. So there's a huge number of elderly and not many young. But what's starting to happen is that young are starting to reassert themselves. And the Romanian Jewish community has proved itself to be wonderfully ready to uh, allow young people to be their community leaders. So uh, I can think of uh, three um, town community leaders who are in their 20s. So actually the elders have not stood in the way. They've been excited by the arrival of these young adults. And I've done some work with them. Um, And uh, and so Romania's, it's small numbers, but it's actually looking quite feisty, actually. It's quite good. Um, and the general Romanian mood around Jews is, seems okay. They've got other fish to fry, frankly. I mean, Romania's got problems. Yes? Uh, I'm going to give you an American position. Since all-time anti-Semitism is no longer acceptable in Europe, partially people do it via anti-Zionism. What's your take on it? Right. Um, Anti-Zionism is anti-Zionism, and anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism. Sometimes anti-Zionism is masked anti-Semitism, no doubt about it. And sometimes it isn't, no doubt about that too. Right? And the trick for Jews is to recognize the difference. That's a trick for everybody, really, but not least for Jews. Um, so I would say that you're right that, generally speaking, anti-Semitism is not an acceptable expression in Europe nowadays, um, although there are still anti-Semitic expressions. Um, there are far-right parties and so on and so forth. Mostly they go for the Muslims, all right, as a, as a, a substitute for going for the Jews. But it's the same language, same stuff. Um, and Jews fall for it. There are Jews in every place who line up with the fascist parties because they think that, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So if they're against the Muslims, then I'll, help, I'll join in with them. Small numbers of Jews, but nevertheless there are some. Um, Anti-Zionism has to be distinguished, I think, between two different things. this, This is a whole other lecture, but in simple form. Is the opposition to Israel um, an opposition about specifics of its policy, behavior, practice, so on and so forth, in which case it seems to me to be a legitimate political challenge? Or is it a fundamental opposition to the very existence of a Jewish state? In which case it seems to me to be making an exception for Jews, the one group of people who are not allowed to have their own country. That seems to me to be automatically and obviously anti-Semitic. Most anti-Zionism is the first thing and not the second thing. The vast majority of people are not saying there shouldn't be a state of Israel. The vast majority of people are saying, I don't agree with the state of Israel's action here, there, or wherever. Some of that can be manipulated, and people can fall into and utilize the tropes and forms of anti-Semitism. And that does happen. And people are not smart enough. They're not... Jews have all their antennae out for anti-Semitism. We spot it everywhere, even when it's not there. Right? It's a bit like a child who's been beaten. And so a perfectly well-meaning adult goes over to them and says, so, what? and the minute they lift their hand, the child goes like this. Right? It's not wrong of the child. You understand why that happens. 
But somehow or other, the child has to learn to trust that some adults aren't going to beat them. All right, that's really tricky. Most non-Jews are like the adult lifting their hand. They don't even know that it's upsetting. All right? And we've had a couple of cases in Britain just recently where members of parliament have said things just shockingly anti-Semitic. And the members of parliament themselves, and I sincerely believe this, are shocked at the assertion that what they've said is anti-Semitic. So they don't even think about it. It didn't even cross their minds. Let me give you a, an example. The British ambassador to Israel is a Jew. Well, there are not that many ambassadors, British ambassadors who are Jews. Right, the Foreign Office is not the place where Jews have gone to work as a rule. There are not that many Jews in the diplomatic service. So how many Jewish ambassadors are there? Right? Not been that many. But anyway, the British ambassador to Israel is a Jew. A Labour member of parliament who's been an active member of the um, uh, Labour Friends of Israel and the Inter Interparty Parliamentary Committee Against Antisemitism, or whatever it's called, right? Um, a, a Labour member of parliament said in the course of a debate about Israel, perhaps it would be wiser not to have a Jewish ambassador because otherwise there could easily be accusations that he was not being impartial. Right? Or he's not serving the interests of Britain. That's a shockingly anti-Semitic thing because it's, of course, it's the accusation of dual loyalties, isn't it? That Jews can't be trusted to act for the country for which they, they act. It's appalling. This man didn't even hear it that way. Just thought he was making an interesting observation. When it was pointed out to him that this sounds an awful lot like stuff which has been said in the past, he, he, was, I mean, he backpedaled at, at a tremendous rate. He was horrified. So I don't think people are tuned in. We are very much so. So that we recognize stuff which isn't even intended. Right? Um, so, yes, there is some of that. And certainly, of course, Europeans are much more critical in the Middle East um, of both sides, to be fair. Right? Much closer to both sides um, than, than the Americans are. And I've been very struck here, as I listen to the news and so forth, how many stories involve Israel, references to Israel. Sometimes positive, sometimes negative, but they're in the air. Whereas in Britain, you know, most of the time you don't hear Israel in, uh, in news stories. It doesn't crop up all that often. But here it's kind of item two. Here's some American news, now here's some Israel news. All right? It takes a long time before you get to Israel news unless something really dramatic has happened. Um, yes, sir. Anti-Semitism in the British royal family? No. No, not at all. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's a different thing, yes. Um, but we're going back a bit now. Um, I mean, I don't know how positive Teddy Roosevelt was for Jews. Um, but I, I think um, it's pretty clear. I, I don't know about... No. In the 1930s, 20s, 30s, 40s, in America, as much as in Britain and most of the world, it was commonplace to say negative things about Jews in a casual, throwaway way. In just the same way as it was commonplace right up until the 50s, 60s and 70s to say casual, throwaway, negative things about blacks. 
Right? It was kind of commonplace. You didn't even have to think about it. You didn't have to apologize or explain yourself. It was just what people did, what they said. Right? And it was a remarkable individual who guarded their tongue against such statements because it's just kind of what people thought. Right? So I think we have to be careful not to be anachronistic. What is true is that Edward VIII, and it seems like Wallace Simpson, were very enamored of Hitler. Now, whether they were particularly enamored of his Jewish policies or not, that seemed like kind of not the most important thing. It just seemed like a serious fellow who you could do business with. Um, and everybody, or lots of people, were afraid of communism. Shouldn't underestimate that push in the other direction. Um, but I, I don't think there's, well, there is no evidence of anti-Semitism in the British royal family. Um, Prince Philip, of course, his mother uh, protected and saved some Jews in Greece. And Prince Philip was um, originally Greek. Um, and she was honored in uh, Yad Vashem. And, uh, um, and he went to Yad Vashem to mark that occasion. Um, the Queen, Prince Philip, Prince Charles, Princess Anne have all been to shul, more often than some Jews. Um, there's no, I, I, and most of them have, you know, done dinners for Jewish charities and stuff like that. Um, I've met the Queen a few times, I've worked with Prince Charles. Um, nobody's ever commented on the fact that I wear a kippah. It's, you know, I, I, I don't detect any such thing. Having said that, of course, the British royal family is a particularly privileged, isolated group of people. And the probability is that they say some pretty ancient and um, dinosauric things about stuff we might feel uncomfortable about, I suppose. But I don't see it. Yes, um, lady behind Europe is taken overall, and of course it's huge generalization, but Europe is taken overall hugely more secular, or if you like, less Christian than the United States. Hugely less. Uh, the phenomenon of the Christian right here is pretty well unimaginable in any European country. Right? In Italy, in Spain, in Ireland, um, the church, the Catholic church, uh, is accustomed to making assertive statements about public policy. But the population, largely, walk right away from those statements. Right? I, I don't know a European country in which, for example, the debates that you have about abortion 
would be credible. It's just an obvious thing that people have a right to an abortion and you should provide it. And the state should provide it. Right? So definitely um, Europe taken overall is more secular than America. That also, of course, has an impact on how Jews and Muslims express themselves. One of the things Americans frequently say is that the Jews in Europe seem to kind of slink around, they're not proud, they're ashamed of themselves, they hide who they are. It's just not European to walk about going, look at my badge of honor, I am this. It just don't do it. It's all more understated. So that's not just Jews, it's Christians, it's everybody. Muslims, of course, are a bit more obvious as a rule because they're a different color to most Europeans, right? So it's a, a bit more difficult to be understated when you're already distinctive. And remember, Europe until recently didn't have the huge black population that America had and, and for many decades managed to pretend it didn't have. Right? But, but Europe was white for centuries. The only odd group of people pretty well in Europe for centuries were the Jews. So the minute black folks start arriving and, and um, Asians, what you call Indians, um, and to a lesser extent, Orientals, what you call Asians, um, these, these groups start arriving, um, they're noticeable. And, and Europe is having to learn very fast how to accommodate those groups. Um, but the church, there are some parties, political parties in different countries, uh, which are called the Christian this or the Christian that, Christian Democrats or the Christian Front or whatever it may be. But these terms are normally historical rather than an indication of a particular political point. Um, the Catholic Church is pretty weak in most countries in political terms. In Poland, of course, it was highly significant because it was really the bastion that led to the possibility of a different stance to the Communist Party. Uh, John Paul II was highly significant in, in the breakdown of communism in Poland. Um, in the Bal Balkans, uh, Serbia, Croatia, that thing, um, there's a lot of religious tension, you just need to understand this, that the Serbs are Serbian Orthodox Christians and the Croatians are Roman Catholics and the Bosnians are Muslims, right? And there are um, undertoes of religious conflict, but they're not theological, ideological religious conflict, it's ethnic conflict. Just in the same way as you've got the Catholics and the Protestants in Northern Ireland, right, which has settled down somewhat. But this was not really a theological dispute. This was about ethnic groups and history and who takes charge and who doesn't. Um, so, I mean, we, we look at America and we're just astonished that a modern country can be held to ransom by a bunch of people who say they don't believe in evolution. I mean, it's kind of, what century are we in? Um, so, I mean, that's just, just odd to us. And I think, I think most Europeans would feel terribly nervous if that started happening in their country. Israel or less for the Jews because this population is now 
from North Africa, and they're now in Paris. And other countries, like, are, are they going to be changing that the Holocaust didn't happen, and they're not going to support Israel, etc., because of this people that have immigrated well, into Europe? Well, I... I would say, shockingly, the exact opposite. Right? You say, is there appeasement and so on? In France, they've taken, as you may know, there's a law that prevents Muslim women from wearing a hijab, a headscarf, in all government places. That means, basically, schools, government offices, post offices, libraries, universities. I, I mean, any Jew ought to be shocked at that. Because, of course, it has consequences, because Jews, technically speaking, can't wear kippot in these places either. And Christians can't wear ostentatious crosses. Apparently, they can wear little crosses. I don't know if you can wear a non-ostentatious hijab. Right? Um, th this should be shocking, that people's capacity to manifest their religious convictions in, you know, should be restricted in some way. Um, so, but France has taken that, that stance. And interestingly enough, Jews have largely gone along with it, again, because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, but I think it's a slippery slope. Uh, I don't think there's a huge amount of appeasement. In fact, I think there's a huge amount of fear and confrontation. One of the things I do when I go around, I mean, I was in uh, Malmo recently in Sweden, um, trying to explain to the local municipal authorities that probably the best way to handle Turks when they arrive is to talk to them rather than suppress them or contain them or be afraid of them. Find out what they're about. Find out what they're looking for. Find out what would help them integrate. Right? So I, I don't think... I, I would like Europe to be, in fact, more tolerant and accommodating. I think we just can take um, a couple more, one over here and one over here. So, yes. I'm sorry, say again. I'm interested in your thoughts on um, Turkey, and particularly since they want to join the European Union, whether this portends worse or better uh, for Israel. Well, as you know, Turkey is a country like Russia, which is divided between Europe and Asia. Right? So Russia is half European and half Asian, um, and so too is Turkey. Um, and Turkey did for, probably still does, uh, for a long time aspire to enter the European Union. And uh, a number of European countries have been very resistant to this uh, for two reasons. And it's difficult to unpack what the two reasons are. One reason is that Turkey is a huge, comparatively poor country. And if it entered the European Union, before you know where you are, you would have about 50 million really poor folk who could move across the continent, right? Um, and that probably, economically, looks like a really difficult thing to handle. So there's resistance on that front, which I understand, and I, you know, I'd like us to get to work on it, but I understand it. The other thing, of course, is this clash of civilizations. As a Muslim country, we don't want all those Muslims coming over here and so on, which I think is really stupid. And I think that the effect of having resisted Turkish uh, entry into Europe has been to push Turkey away. And therefore, we are partly responsible, European policy is partly responsible for the increasing... Uh, assertiveness of Turkish Islam. Having said that, of course, we've got to recognize that Turkish Islam is a very, very different creature to Islam in most other countries. Um, it's a much more tolerant, open, relaxed, um, globally per perceived um, operation. Turkey is a very interesting history. 
Uh, and we shouldn't automatically assume that every Muslim group is like every other Muslim group. Turks are quite distinctive. The very liberal uh, Turkish Islam. Uh, and of course, there are a lot of Turks already around Europe. Um, but I would have liked to see more uh, accommodation. One more, yes. We'll take this gentleman here yes, from Switzerland. I'm, I'm sorry to severely disagree with you. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> Just at the last minute. Uh, oh dear. Muslims, but, uh, I should be rightist. Yes. Right. You didn't mention Jogic, the rightist party in Hungary, which is very aggressively anti-Semitic. Yes. Uh, you didn't mention. Which one? How many? Uh, what proportion of the vote in the last election? It went down, but it's still significant. What proportion? Uh, I, I'm not sure. Right. Eleven percent. Okay. It's what Ron Paul got, wasn't it? You didn't mention the deletion of the Holocaust curriculum from the British schools. Okay, there I will stop you. Because that is a perfect example of a piece of nonsense which has been peddled. It is simply not true. Right. This is, this is an email rumour that unfortunately has taken me more time than is worth trying to resist, and clearly I've failed, right? What happened was the British curriculum, the British national curriculum for schools, and you've got to remember the vast majority of children in Britain go to state schools, the British national curriculum for schools um, requires all children to study history up to the age of 14. Right? After the age of 14, children start selecting which subjects they want to study for two years. And then after the age of 16, they select only three subjects that they want to study for two years. And then they go to university and study just one subject. So it's a highly um, selective process. Okay? The national curriculum requires that children study the Shoah in that last segment in the history um, course at age 14. So all children in Britain must study the Shoah. Uh, by the way, the government also introduced National Holocaust Memorial Day on the 27th of January, this being the only government-required day in the calendar which relates to something that did not happen in Britain. Right? And the, and the government requires, and in fact has provided funding, for two children from every single high school in the country every year to go to Auschwitz and bring back to their peers what they have learnt and experienced. This is government funded. I wish your government would do the same. However, on one occasion, a teacher in the north of England was uh, reviewing the history syllabus for public examinations for the 14 to 16 year olds. These are kids who have opted to do history, right? And this teacher was in a town with a large Muslim population, and her school had a large Muslim population. And she was quoted by one of the tabloid newspapers, from which it's important to always get our world knowledge. She was quoted by one of the tabloid newspapers as saying that she had decided not to choose the Shoah, which is an option, amongst several, you can do the Vikings and the Victorians and the Shoah and whatever, right? She decided not to do the Shoah because she feared that it would offend or upset her Muslim pupils. She did not ask them, 
not try to find out, didn't know if it was true or not. But that's the decision she'd made. And this tabloid newspaper going, it's pretty, you know, the standard tabloid thing. Look, we're all being held to ransom by the Muslims. We can't do what we like because the Muslims are telling us what to do. She hadn't asked them. She hadn't, you know, she, we don't know if she was right or wrong. This went round the world like wildfire. And every second week, I get something from some American, nobody else. Nobody else, just an American who wants to know why it is that Britain is banning the Holocaust from the British school curriculum. Because I'll tell you why. Americans, I fear, and of course I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about all the other Americans, right? Americans, I fear, like the story that Jewish life is not sustainable in Europe. And the reason why they like this story is because it justifies their own story. Our grandparents, great-grandparents, whatever, came out of Europe because it was deadly. It was useless. It was not a place you could live. That story was confirmed then by the Shoah. Let's be clear about this. The Shoah didn't have to happen. The Shoah happened. It was confirmed by the Shoah. American jury could say, see, we were right. It's Dreadful place, you can't, Jews can't possibly live there. And then Jews like me turn up and say, actually, you can. And you go, I don't think you can. You're wrong, you don't understand. We know, we got out, we were wise, you're stupid. Right. And I think that Americans find it difficult to accept the assertion that actually you can live as a Jew in Europe. And it's seen to be myopic, rose-tinted, Besides leftists, of course, which is a terrible insult, of which I'm proud. Um, right, th that thing. So I'm, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but I must interrupt that because it simply isn't true. Tell your friends, save me the emails. Well, thank you for that explanation. But uh, I still have to say that there are plenty of assertions in a little country like the Netherlands of uh, the foreign minister being Jewish. It's, it's all over the national news. The fact that a lot... Sorry, how did he become minister? Uri Rosenthal. Yes, how did he become minister? How? How? By the normal appointment procedure. Elected to parliament and so forth. I suppose so. Yes, by whom? Population. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, so, so what's the problem? The issue, well, they chose a Jewish minister, so what's the problem? The problem that they mention it. The problem is he's being accused of, of not being non-partisan. Of not being... Okay. Well, like I said at the beginning, there is no truth to tell. I can only tell you my experience. All right. I do not believe that I'm averting my eyes. I do not believe that I'm refusing to see or hear. But I do believe that I'm not automatically reacting to anything and everything on the assumption that it must be negative. For example, if there are government ministers who are publicly elected who are known to be Jews, I would say that there are at least two ways of reading that. Either it means to say that people don't mind Jews being in the government, or it means that they attack them when they get there. 
I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm, you know, it seems very strange to me because I come to America, and in America I hear exactly the same kind of talk, but a more positive spin on put on it. The same issues arise. The same concerns are there. The same worry about, you know, whether Americans are in power or not, or what they're doing, or whether they're the right people or the wrong people, or whatever. But here, it's all assumed to be positive. And, and every time you hear anything in America, it's assumed to be negative. Right? I, I, the only thing I can say to you is that I urge you to read the stuff that you read more critically and cross-check it because often it's peddling a tale which is not true. However, you've heard this gentleman who spends half his time in Europe and his perspective is real. And if he experiences anti-Semitism continuously and if it's virulent... And, oh, you haven't experienced it. Ah, now isn't that interesting? You never meet anybody who's experienced it personally, but they all know somebody who knows somebody who has. Now, I just wonder whether that's one person. We're all talking about the same guy. Right? Nobody ever experiences it personally, but we all know it's virulent. Well, frankly, if it's virulent, you should have experienced it. Uh, my definition of virulent is it's all around. And if you keep going and you've been there half the year and you haven't experienced it, that's not a definition of virulent that I recognise. Folks, time's up. Thank you very much indeed for your attention.